Hello, Two Forks Tower. This is Sissy Jones, voice of Delilah from Firewatch, and you are listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 128 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, April 24th, 2022. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we're joined by Dan Stapleton, executive editor of reviews for IGN, on to discuss how IGN goes about reviewing games and the challenges of navigating that space from ad revenues to the mythical paid reviews. Prior to that, we're chatting the latest information on Xbox console sales, Amy Hennig has a new Star Wars project, and Ubisoft has an NFT problem. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I am wont to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness are headed to the podcast Midweek Mix-Up. The guys over there, including Wandering Dutch, Boxenberger, Xbox Mick, they were super cool in inviting me on, giving me a chance to chat about Xbox during the day in a rare day appearance for me, uh, given that I was on spring break this past week and had some time off. I was able to join some of the daytime podcasts, and that was an absolute blast to hang out with them, chat with them, and engage with their audience. I had a fantastic time, guys, and I really appreciate you all having me on. Definitely a boost to my gaming week. Now, apart from that, we've got a little bit of housekeeping before we get to the news. Uh, later on in the episode, I'm going to be talking about Godfall. I have been playing the game. I was given a review copy of the game uh, provided by Gearbox. And when I get a review copy, if I have the means, I like to pass that review uh, kind of goodness that I get, the chance to play a free game, as it were, uh, on to you guys. And so if you're interested in playing Godfall after hearing my thoughts about it, uh, drop your gamer tag into the comment section on YouTube, and I will enter you into a little RNG uh, kind of prize pool thing to see if I can't give away a copy uh, purchased of my own money. So that way, you know, I'm getting to spread the love around. So if you're interested in Godfall, drop your gamer tag into the YouTube reviews, uh, and I will take good care of you guys there for sure. Now, plenty of news this week before we chat with Dan Stapleton, uh, and I, I want to dive right into it. The first news st uh, story comes from kind of a Twitter exchange between VG Charts, uh, which does some tracking of console sales, and they do it based on guesstimates. There's a bit of controversy in it, uh, but in announcing and making a, a bold statement about Xbox console sales, several Xbox executives and employees came out seemingly in support of the news. And this is a complicated issue. Uh, well, I suppose it's not very complicated, but it's layered. It's complex in some ways. So for context, VG Charts is a site that uses aggregate data. They use NPD data uh, and a couple other sources, and they make kind of logical estimates as to kind of where console sales would be based on, on various projections and the data that they do get. They have a spotty track record of being accurate, so much so that Xbox has uh, kind of shrugged them off in years past and several journalists have as well. In recent years, VG Chart's record has improved. They've kind of cleaned up the way they do. Uh, they do aggregate data. They've, they've shown more information as, to far, as far as how they get some of that information. And 
they've been more accurate of late, according to, you know, other various journalists, I, sh- I should note. Now, what's interesting about it is they came out this past week and said, uh, or showed a comparison, rather, between Xbox 360 sales after seven, 17 months and Xbox Series S and X sales after 17 months. And at 17 months time, the Xbox 360 was at 9.38 million units sold, uh, according to VG charts. Whereas at 17 months now, the Xbox Series X and S are at 13.87 million units sold, meaning that the Series S and X are ahead of where Xbox 360 was by almost 4.5 million units. Now, that's impressive in, in, on a number of levels. It bodes very well for this generation in which uh, console sales are a barometer, but I don't think they're the barometer. I think engagement is, is really the barometer level. But to see that the Series S and X are outselling and outpacing the Xbox 360 by 4.5 million is pretty impressive, all things considered. And we're lending credence to these numbers by the fact that Aaron Greenberg quote tweeted it and stated, quote, Uh, Thanks to all the people who have helped support the growth and adoption of Xbox so far this generation. Lots of work ahead and hopefully supply continues to improve globally as well. End quote. Now, this adds validity to the idea that if the numbers aren't at least close to accurate, uh, at the very least, Xbox is doing well and improving upon where they were with the Xbox 360 times. That would have to be a marketable improvement over where the Xbox One was. At that time in the Xbox One era, we were not getting data on how many units sold that was truly. If you go into the VG Charts uh, website and kind of look at this data show, it has a graph and it it shows uh, where the Xbox Series S and X are versus the 360. And in all things considered, the Series S and X are trending far upward uh, and at a higher rate upwards than the Xbox 360 was. Now, the question of how you should interpret this data and whether or not it's relevant to you is 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 a layered conversation, right? You should not truly care about console sales data in the big sense of the word, because if you've got the console you're having fun with, that's where you should be playing. And it shouldn't bother you whether or not it sells more units, less units than any other competitor or than previous, uh, you know, previous iterations of that box. The counterpoint to that logically would be, hey, if my box is doing well, the one that I enjoy is doing well, I'm going to get more content for it. By all means, we're seeing no signs that content is going to slow down for any of the consoles. In fact, uh, pandemic or otherwise, it seems very much that video games are in vogue uh, and the money is there. And that's where people are flocking to to create content. I mean, not just in the gaming space, but like think about the podcasting gaming space. There's a new podcast every two minutes, right? People are like, oh, I'm doing an Xbox podcast and it's just popping up here and there. Everyone's doing one now. I'm doing a PlayStation podcast. That's that's a good sign for our industry. Uh, it is getting a little saturated, uh, I, I would think. But I mean, who's to say, right? Like that's that's an opinion question. You got to find your audience where you can. What's interesting, I think, to me is that for VG Charts to have multiple people, including Aaron Greenberg and Josh Muncie, come out and and quote tweet and talk about this data gives you the idea that, okay, Xbox is in a very good place in terms of unit sales. We know that Game Pass numbers are doing well, uh, a little over 25 million there. Um, I still thought it would be higher, but still, that's a pretty impressive number, all things considered. And to see that they've gotten over 13 million consoles out to people is pretty darn cool. Like that, to me, is exciting given the the global chip shortages that are going on and knowing that they're becoming more prolific and more findable is a good sign as well i'm curious to see if that slows down at all as the chip shortage 
uh, is understood by people and they're, they're cutting deals left and right. And as we watch the first party portfolios truly flesh out into this generation, uh, consistently, I want to call the series S and X and the PlayStation five next gen, which it's not, it's this generation now, but this blended, uh, element of releases is, is truly odd, but I am looking forward to, as the consoles become more, uh, available, I'm looking forward to leaving the Xbox one and the PlayStation four behind. I think they are now holding back games in a way that perhaps they wouldn't before, um, Years ago, that was a conversation, you know, is this version going to hold back that version? And I think it was a little bit of a mixed bag. It's not an apples to apples, oranges to oranges type discussion because of the way games are made on the PC space kind of thing. Uh, But now I think it's pretty clear that 2013 hardware is going to hold back 2020 hardware, right? Like, I think that's a a fair point. Nonetheless, it's exciting to see that this information is going out there and that uh, people are commenting on it on an official on an official channel. Like that's kind of neat to see for sure. Um, I do wish that Xbox would just be clear and transparent about their sales numbers, but I understand why they wouldn't be uh, still, you know, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Uh, let's see. Next up on our news list here, uh, Amy Hennig has a new star Wars project and that's exciting for a couple different reasons for sure. Uh, but Amy Hennig kind of being welcome back into the star Wars space is good news given that her last projects have been, uh, wiped clean, gone, you know, 1313 project ragtag, those star Wars games are gone. And it's kind of a bummer to know that, that all that work was scrapped. You have to imagine that her next project being made with Skydance uh, is a spiritual successor in some way, shape or form to that, to that game that she was working on that kind of uncharted esque star Wars project. Uh, for me, I'm very excited to see what happens with this one. I want more Star Wars games. As of right now, we know of eight Star Wars games officially in development. You have Project Eclipse, which is with, oh my gosh, the PlayStation developer that made, uh, not too human. Oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on it. But they're, they're making uh, Star Wars Eclipse, which is that kind of like story-driven game uh, with the troubled PlayStation Studio, the one that had some allegations against it. You got the KOTOR remake with Asper Media. You got Ubisoft and Massive Entertainment's open-world Star Wars game. You got Star Wars Hunters over on the Switch. You've got Jedi Fallen Order 2, which I think is coming this year, guys. Um, yeah, EA is working on a first-person shooter. There's an EA strategy game that's been announced. And then, of course, Amy Hennig's new action-adventure title. So eight Star Wars games in development. No sign of a Rogue Squadron. Very upset by that, by the way. Uh, but that's exciting to me. I loved when Star Wars games were coming out left and right and you could dive into different ones. Like there were some that I skipped and some that I didn't. I think it's a good thing. Uh, some people would worry about market saturation, but I feel like Star Wars is in an interesting and, and good, healthy space in terms of uh, production. You've got Obi-Wan later this month. You've got these eight Star Wars games in development there. You had the very successful Mandalorian series. You have the pretty darn successful uh, Boba Fett series, which had a great second half of its season. Um, you got Ahsoka coming out. You got a, the Acolyte. I'm loving this this idea of more Star Wars. I did just buy a Jedi costume uh, for Star Wars week, but I'm super stoked for that. I, I'm really excited to see what happens at the Star Wars celebration, right? Like in May, we're supposed to see another uh, few Star Wars games shown. We know about eight of them. I have on. I have a hunch, I should say. I, rumors, rumors are rumors, right? that you're going to see another Star Wars game in May, uh, which is really exciting. And I'm just fingers crossed that one of them is a Rogue Squadron or Asper Media remakes Rogue Squadron because I really want that game to be available. I'm loving, excuse the yawn, mid-podcast, so unprofessional, and I didn't even pause it. 
Uh, I'm really loving the Lego Star Wars games where you, or levels where you fly around as a ship. That's my favorite part. I did a little Dash Rendar, Shadows of the Empire uh, bit. I've been playing uh, different levels like their Rogue Squadron, but I want that full-on Hoth level in Rogue Squadron. I want those full-on Death Star battles from Rogue Squadron. I want that. Those are the best. Those are the absolute best for sure. So, yeah. Bravo to that. More Annie Hennig uh, in, in Star Wars is good. I will say Amy, Amy Hennig, like Jade Raymond, has a lot of weight behind her name, but I worry about the games that haven't shipped, right? Like, haven't shipped a game in a long time. And so uh, I, I want to see kind of the product come to fruition here because we've been screwed out of their their goodness too many times. It's time to see, what, see what's going on. Uh, next up, Ubisoft announced Project Q. And this was hilarious and sad and frustrating uh, on a couple different levels. So Ubisoft announced Project Q, uh, which is a new game in the PvP space that is not a battle royale, but it looks like one. Uh, it's a team battle arena that lets you own truly own your experience. And the game is in early development and you can register to sign up. Truly own your experience. That sounds like NFTs, doesn't it? And given Ubisoft's kind of run with project courts and how that backfired and they're canceled tom clancy games i think it was ghost recon Frontlines, and they had one other that was canceled and then they took off the tom clancy branding on uh, one of their kind of arena shooters as well project q is in for for a lot of a lot of road bumps that's for sure uh their social media team was adamant on twitter that they are not uh, planning to put nfts into this game they were also clear that it is not a battle royale Okay. It looks like Battle Royale. It looks like Fortnite. And it's it's hard to trust Ubisoft at this point, given that uh, they've been trying multiple business tactics to monetize elements of a game that have been excessive, right? Like they had those XP boosters at one point. They've done lots of expansions for their games, which I do not mind expansions one bit. Microtransactions have been proliferant. And then they had, you know, the courts that they tried to drop into uh, to ghostwire not ghostwire what is it ghost ghost recon oh whatever breakpoint that's what it was kind of so forgettable was breakpoint so it's hard to trust ubisoft at this point now interestingly ubisoft is combating takeover uh multiple companies are looking to be purchasing ubisoft and there there are signs to, to that are showing that ubisoft is kind of in the mix for people to be to be acquiring them private investor groups are looking to pick them up as well because they're in financial trouble uh it's a mixed bag if you're ubisoft right because anyone that picks them up it's going to get that amazing set of ip that they have the assassin's creed name alone prints money tom clancy prints money uh even with with a frustrating few years of releases those names alone are huge but you've also got a lot of turmoil on the developer side, uh, mismanagement of and mistreatment of employees. Uh, Yves Gilmont doesn't have a successor. There's a lot of elements here that are troubled. And the logical question being on an Xbox show is, would Ubisoft be a good pickup for Microsoft? Uh, and, and Todd Oxer wrote in with a question that I think is adjacent to this. With Ubisoft games coming to Game Pass and no update on Ubisoft Plus on console, will we see a reduction of third-party subscriptions? Okay. So we're going to put a pin in in the in Todd's question, but we're going to loop back to it. Uh, the logical question that people have been asking is, is, would Microsoft kind of go for Ubisoft? It would be a good marriage in some ways because you'd, th you'd pick up the Tom Clancy brand, you'd pick up Assassin's Creed, you'd get some very talented studios in there. You also pick up a lot, a lot of baggage 
and that's baggage that they've got in already with this this Activision pickup, right? Like the mistreatment of employees and the mishandling of projects is something they're going to have to do a lot of cleanup on as soon as they get the Activision deal done. And they can't even comment on the Activision stuff. And if they were to pursue Ubisoft as well, I would have to think, though I'm not a lawyer nor an expert, I would have to think that would further complicate the questions of monopolization. Uh, The idea that they're going after another publisher. They snagged Bethesda, publisher, although I think of them as developers, publisher. They're snagging Activision. To snag Ubisoft as well, oh boy, right? Oh boy, That's, that's a... That's a big, big ask. Uh, You know, the other idea is like, would they go to Sony? Would they go to 2K? Would Tencent be interested? Would Embracer Group, who continues to gobble up AA Studios, be interested? I don't know, right? I don't know. This one, the only one I really want Microsoft to get is WB. uh, And even then they wouldn't get the IP. So it's it's hard. I just think WB Montreal and, and Rocksteady are the two like wins. Oh, NetherRealm as well. But with Ubisoft, it's it's a mixed bag, you know, because they've been so bogged down with these monetization models that it belays and betrays some of the talent that come with their studios. I'm not sure there uh, which one or how I feel about it. Now, to loop this into Todd's question, if you missed it, we're getting uh, Assassin's Creed Origins and another Ubisoft title. Uh, I think it's For Honor coming to Game Pass officially. Maybe it's not For Honor. I can't remember. Uh, but they're kind of looping into Game Pass, some of these Ubisoft games. And UB has never, ever shied away from putting things on different and multiple consoles. They supported the Wii U at launch. They'll support any system at launch. They'll put their games any and everywhere. So it's the first time these are truly coming to Game Pass. And that's exciting in some ways. They've supported games with gold multiple times over. But it also begs the question of what's going to go on with Ubisoft Plus, their subscription service. And Todd's question is, will we see third-party subscriptions die out and fade away? And that's a complex issue, but I think the answer is going to be yes in some cases. Uh, Because, like, would you have wanted a Bethesda subscription? Would you have wanted an Activision subscription? Would you want a Ubisoft or a 2K subscription? Grand Theft Auto is getting one right? Like, would you pay a yearly fee to play the new Assassin's Creed? I don't know. One of the nice things about Game Pass, and uh, to a different extent, but similar to PlayStation Plus's now tiered system, is you get variety, right? But if you're subscribing to a publisher that doesn't do much in the way of variety, like a lot of Ubisoft games are formulaic, and anyone that's frustrated by that, what they would call a tired argument, there's a lot of, of signposts that show how those games are formulaic. Would people want a subscription service to know what they're getting every year? Some would say, yes, absolutely. I love me a good Ubisoft clear the map game, but is it a different experience or can I wait for that to be on sale? You know, those are, those are questions that you can kind of pose to yourself, but I think you will see a reduction in third party subscriptions. I also think, and Netflix is my indicator here that subscription services are becoming bloated and they need to be cautious to not overinflate themselves uh, and to be very wary of market trends. Is it wise to be modeling everything offer after a subscription service, or should you just participate in ones that are pre-existing? Uh, and that's a question, man, because Netflix is losing people left and right on the video side, uh, in large part due to rising prices and content that people aren't asking for and canceling things that they are asking for. Uh, but they've got metrics on that one, and metrics and narrative don't always line up, right? 
Uh, but I do think you're going to see a reduction in third-party subscriptions, Todd. I just don't know how you wouldn't at this point. There's too many. And I think people are getting wise to the fact that their time is what's really at stake here. It's not a matter of good and bad content. It's a matter of time. I don't have time to play so many things. Uh, it doesn't stop me from buying games on sale, though. That's for sure. Hmm. All right. One more thing I want to talk about uh, before we kind of move on and talk and, and chat Godfall and then go to our interview with Dan. Uh, and that's Halo Infinite. Halo Infinite's roadmap for Season 2 has been released. It's got some good stuff on it, and it's got some hugely frustrating things on it. So, on the good side, Season 2 is launching on May 3rd. Season 2 is going to include Forge, but that's coming in August. Season 2 is going to have uh, more content, a more complete battle pass. Uh, it's going to have a number of different events going on with it kind of an expanded and better version of what you got this time with fractures the first fracture event is going to be uh last week in may it's called entrenched they are going to have campaign co-op starting and targeting late august season two is going to last oof, for six months six months and there'll be earnable credits in the system as well two new maps some new modes in there Oh man, it's 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 hard, man. And being a Halo fan is strange these days because we're getting more and better Halo than we've had in the last like what seven years, right? Uh, two years ago, we didn't even have Halo Infinite. The Master Chief Collection is doing very well. You got a Halo show, which bringing in non-Halo fans. Which, by the way, Episode Five of the Halo show, very good. It felt like Halo. Uh, it's a good sign. We'll see if we'll see if it pays off because. Episode two, man, that was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life, but the others have been fine. Episode five is good. Um, so yeah, this season two of Infinite, man, it really bothers me that it's six months. That is a huge red flag. It's so damn frustrating. Pardon my language to those of you who have kids in the car, but it's so frustrating. Season two is six months. That means there will be two seasons across the first year of this multiplayer life cycle. I love that Forge is going to be included for those that are interested. It's going to be an open beta. I love that they're getting campaign co-op in there. That's happening in late August, theoretically. But man, six months. Six months of, uh, for season two. That bothers the mess out of me. For all the goodness they do, they're just so slow in producing content. And Joseph Staten's quote says, We know we need to deliver more content and more features quickly. Staying true to priority zero means that we sometimes need to slow down in order to stay healthy and move faster later, but we're also aggressively looking for ways to accelerate, end quote. Priority zero is not burning out his team. That was one of Staten's things when he came in, and I applaud that in a world where we've got crunch problems and issues and you want to make Microsoft an inviting place for people to work that's good. It's still too slow, and that's not excusable at this point. You released a game during a pandemic, excused. Delayed it for a year, excused. The campaign, pretty great gameplay, all excused. Great, love that. But six months for season two is a huge red flag. The quote that says we're aggressively looking for ways to accelerate, I think this points to expanding team size, bringing in uh, multiple teams to have a rotating set of features similar to how Sea of Thieves does it. That's, that's good, right? You want that. How has that not already been in place though? Right. And I'm speculating, but like, how has that not already been happening? Certain Affinity is making that Battle Royale light mode, which I'm very excited about. That's confirmed. They're making Battle Royale light. I'm so excited for it. Um, but I want real Battle Royale. 
So I want to see what see this last Spartan standing mode truly is. Love that they're strengthening ties with certain infinity. Uh, want them to put a ring on it for sure. But man, it's just I, I just have so many mixed emotions here about what this does. But I love the gameplay in Halo Infinite. I'm very frustrated by the way they handle uh, a number of things at this stage, right? I really thought season two would have been here earlier than they expected. And I thought for sure it wouldn't be six months long. It would have been three months and that's how it should be. Um, I better hope those events are good and they really need to do something special because the game is incredible and it would be a friggin' waste if they lose that gameplay out uh, because they don't have enough content there. They should be aggressively expanding and accelerating six months ago, a year ago. Maybe they already are. Maybe we're just not hearing about it. Benefit of the doubt is there, but uh, whew, come on, man. Halo Infinite's got to be better. And by the end of this year, it better be elite. It better be elite in terms of the shooter space. That's for sure. All right, let's get to some uh, quick questions here. And then we're going to talk about Godfall. First question came via email from Glyfear. What's up, dude? Appreciate you writing in. He says, long time listener, first time mailer. I've been following the show since episode 34. Dang, you're awesome. That's awesome. Episode 34, you're, you rock, dude. Uh, he says, I love cast co-op. Oh, man, thank you. That means the world because I have to do that with Joseph Moran, and he's honestly the worst human being on this planet. Um, Ainsley's cool, but, you know, like Joe. Ugh. Uh, so he's been listening since episode 34, loves cast co-op. His question is, now that Xbox has acquired Activision Blizzard, do you think Blur could be remade and made into a competing uh, made into a competing kart racer for Xbox. So when the Activision deal does finalize, which it's not yet, we're not expecting it to for some time, uh, the idea of the, the studio Blur kind of being put together to, to make a game similar to Blur, uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm not tracking that. But you, bottom line, you want to know if they could make a kart racer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Xbox needs a good kart racer, and they need to take advantage of characters in their portfolio for sure. So, yes, I think that would be a fantastic choice and a good use of the talent um, that Activision would bring in in terms of that space. Toys for Bob and several of the people that worked on Crash Team Racing uh, would love that. Would love that. That'd be a great, great pickup. Artur Gaming writes in and he says, is it fair to criticize a game for being too long? I'm enjoying Weird West, but it's daunting that it is so long. Enjoy a nice 10-hour single-player campaign sometimes. Uh, Artur, absolutely agree. Yes, you can criticize a game for being too long. I would criticize Dying Light 2's primary like crit pass story for being way too long and and way too wordy uh, for a game that's about you know hacking and slashing zombies. Uh, absolutely, you can criticize games for being too long. I love me a good ten hour campaign single player. That's my that's a blast. What's my favorite is when you've got a good ten hour campaign and then you've got a healthy uh, list of optional quests to do. I think a lot of games handle that very well. Uh, and that's awesome, right? Like, cause if you love the game, you can get more out of it, but if you're content uh, content with a good 10 hour experience, that's the jam right there. Do that. So yeah, I, I love a good, good 10 hour game and you absolutely should criticize games for being too long. Uh, cause it, sometimes they just are right. And time is finite. Last question comes from Mr. Dash revolver. What's up dash. We need to work together soon. Uh, he says, what are your thoughts on Matt Smith's tweet about Xbox Japan's growth? For context listeners, Matt Smith's tweet reads, quote, My team at Xbox Publishing here in Japan is growing. We're working with top-class developers on truly groundbreaking product for Xbox. DMs are open. Happy to answer questions. End quote. He goes on in subsequent tweets to list the different positions they're looking to fill. Um, I think it's cool 
stash. I wouldn't overread into it. I think he's Matt is trying to sell the idea of getting people to come work for him in a space where people don't historically want to work with Xbox. Um, I hope it's something great, right? Like I want it to be. We know that they've been courting Japanese developers for some time, uh, but I, I wouldn't read too much into it. I did reach out to Matt uh, and invite him onto the podcast to talk about his career in Xbox publishing. He politely declined. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a bummer we can't have him on, but at the same time, like you gotta, yeah, like that would make sense, right? For sure. All right, guys. Uh, Godfall, Godfall, Godfall. I am really enjoying Godfall. Did not think I would. Gearbox sent me over a code to check out, uh, at my request. Thanks to some listeners who pushed me to check it out. I really like Godfall, right? This is weird, right? I think there was a lot of real heavy pushback when that game first came out and troubles when it first came out because uh, it was a PlayStation 5 exclusive. They were using phrases like, can only be run on a PlayStation 5. Uh, And it was a looter, but it wasn't a live service game, which is a bit of a misconception, including one held by me when I first uh, began interviewing the team. It's not a a live service game. It's a co-op looter that can be played in a confined space. I've been playing it a lot solo. It reminds me a lot of Outriders, if Outriders was melee-based. Some really cool art, really cool weapons. It is a story that I'm not connecting with in any way, shape, or form, but I'm really enjoying the combat of. So put on a podcast, jumping into Godfall is a good time for me. Um, Very clearly, though, the levels are designed to be played co-op and not a single-player experience, and so far I've only played single-player. So I've had to do some grinding here and there. Bless you to my dog. I had to do some grinding here and there, which I've not really enjoyed the grind part, but the combat and the weapons and the art are super dope. Really fun. Uh, You get these little, uh, not these little, you get like super cool armor sets that you can unlock as you go. They remind me of javelins from Anthem, but they're really just armors and they have little perk abilities here and there like bleed effects, frost, but you don't really notice it, or at least I'm not so far. Um, and I've cleared the first world as it were, uh, like the first big boss and there's some dark Souls style gameplay here and there, but you can just go through and mash buttons. You won't be as successful as unless you play it, like reading the enemies. The problem is because it's meant to be played co-op, you don't get that one-on-one engagement that you would get in a souls style game, despite some of the combat being based on dodging and parrying and meleeing and crit spots here and there. Um, a lot of spell casting going on, some just beautiful particle effects uh, throughout. I'm loving this game as what I would call a double A game, uh, which may be offensive and I don't mean for it to be, but I'm really enjoying aspects of it, right? There's a lot of fun to be had in this world. There's also a lot of problems that that kind of take away from the experience. The Ultimate Edition is 40 bucks. And I feel like if you bought it at 30, like half the price of a, of a, of a full price game, then you'd be quite happy with your purchase. I would not sleep on Godfall. If you like games like outriders, Anthem Avengers, uh, or, or melee button mashy games. Uh, those are kind of the mesh of what it is. It, it does a lot of things well and masters, none of them, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun. So to me, this is a snag it if it's on sale and give it a give it a shot kind of game. Um, I remind you that I got a code from Gearbox and I'm going to be purchasing one for a listener. If you, this sounds like something that you would love, like a good looking, fun melee game to just throw a podcast on and, and grind some levels and have a good time, uh, drop your gamer tag into the YouTube comments and uh, throw a like and a subscribe while you're at it. You know, help that share it out. You know, like help the podcast grow. Um, yeah, throw a like on it or, or throw your gamer tag in there is what I mean to say. 
and I'll enter you into an RNG and I'll pick a winner kind of midweek for by, by Friday. We'll say by Friday, I'll pick a winner and, and I'll send you a code um, purchase with my own money. Cause I like to pass that on when I'm fortunate enough to get one. Cause that's just kind of the nature of the beast, right? Oh man. Okay. So I want to send you guys to the interview with Dan Stapleton of IGN. Uh, before I do want to thank everybody for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. If you haven't had a chance to share it out uh, to anywhere that you think would like it, I would ask you guys to do so uh, and finding it in places that you think would be good fits. One of the things that Reddit doesn't allow you to do is promote your own work. But if you find like a snowboarding community that would be interested in the Shredders interview or an, uh, an Xbox fan site that you think would be interested in the fact that like Shredders is not going to have a sequel, but it's an Xbox exclusive game. And is it going to stay that way? And if you find people that are interested in the Calabunga collection and want to hear digital clips interview, like it means the world when you guys share it to those communities, because those are the people that check it out. Right. Um, and I'm I'm struggling with finding people that are interested in the show, because when people find it, they seem to like it a lot. Uh, which is great, makes me feel good, but like, I'm not the best at promoting, if that makes sense. So if you find people that are, are jamming on it or be interested, please share it to them and let them know, because uh, it means the world to me, right? Uh, it means the world to me for sure. All right, guys, so that's going to be it for me. Let's head you over to an interview with Dan Stapleton of IGN, talking about all the elements of the IGN review process, which I think is a complex and very fascinating issue. Have a great rest of your week. Take care. All righty, guys, I'd like to welcome now to the show IGN's executive editor of reviews, Mr. Dan Stapleton. Dan, thank you for agreeing to be with me today. Oh, my pleasure, Luke. Thanks for having me. I'm ecstatic to get to talk to you. I have a number of things that I would love your insight on, given your extensive career in games as they pertain to the review process and kind of uh, what it's like to work for an outlet like IGN with the the uh, impact it can have on the gaming industry. But before we go into that, I would love for you to elaborate a little bit on your career. Your bio says you've been in games for 18 years. Is that up to date? Uh, sounds about right. Uh, I started at, at PC Gamer Magazine in, uh, in 2004. So, yeah. 2004. Now, did you always know you wanted to go into the gaming uh, industry or was that just a happenstance chance? Uh, I mean, it was something I, I thought would be cool. I never, never realistically considered it was going to be a possibility that I could actually do. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I, I uh, found an ad on Craigslist and, and got my foot in the door. I guess uh, my first published review was actually with IGN. Um, I had I had applied for a uh, for an associate editor job, uh, didn't even get an interview, uh, mm -hmm. but. At the time, the the the, uh, the practice was to uh, uh, see if any of the people who applied for a job and didn't and didn't get it would uh, would want to write some free reviews. So <laughs> I took them up on that. We don't do that anymore. I don't ask anybody to work for free. <laughs> um, yeah, suddenly your inbox is flooded. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I do get people offering to to uh, write reviews for free, but uh, I I don't I don't want to do that for a number of reasons, including like just devaluing the work. I don't I don't think that's fair to to people that that you know do this professionally mm -hmm. um not that you know people that that want to do it for free are, are you know not up to the task or anything like that but i you know if i can't pay somebody for for the work i don't want them i don't want to ask them to do it sure um sorry where where, where were we where were we on the, the question well your um, your first foray was writing a free review uh after you didn't get called back for an interview 
That's right. So um, I had I had gotten one review published, and then I I um, offered to do another one, or I took up another one. Uh, didn't really know what I was doing on that one because it was it was a genre that it was a game that looked like an RTS, but was more of a you know Grognardi uh, um, actual war game, and so mm-hmm. I kind of reviewed it as an RTS and they're like, yeah, we're not going to run this. And it's like, yeah, you made the right call there. But I did have one review published on IGN and that uh, helped me uh, get my foot in the door at, at PC gamer. Uh, so I got that, that job in, I guess it was April of, of uh, 2004. Wow. I was, you know, pre- pretty fresh out of college. I had, I had had a um, uh, internship at a local newspaper for uh, about six months before that. And when you entered into kind of kind of getting that first job, how different is the industry now to what it was then? <laughs> well, that was that was a, a job in print and print journalism, which is a very different pace from uh, from online, uh, just radically different day to day. In in those days, it would you know we were, we were you know making a print publication, so uh, you would have. Uh, you'd have deadlines, but like the first couple of weeks of, of each cycle, each, you know, four week cycle were, were kind of, you know, relaxed. Um, you know, you would, you would do what you could, but, but most of it, you know, you got to play a bunch of games. You gotta, you gotta go on trips to studios for previews. You, um, uh, you know, would, would happen over the course of that cycle. And then it's and toward the end of the, the month, like the last week, the production week was mm-hmm. super busy. Um, so it was kind of a, a regular cadence. Whereas, uh, with online, obviously like everything happens all at once. You're, you know, at the moment something happens, you got to go, go, go. Um, so it's, it's just a much different pace of working. Um, also with, with a magazine, it's like you have a certain number of pages to fill. And once you've, once you've, uh, filled up those pages, the, you're all done. Like there's no more you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the internet is a, you know, bottomless pit of content that you can keep throwing, <laughs> throwing, uh, work into and it will never, never be satiated. So you have to kind of learn to decide uh, when you've done enough. Did you at all? And as so I've had some of the old EGM guys on before. I'm not for sure if you're familiar with Player One Podcast, but uh, those guys have been good enough to come over. And they've talked before about in the magazine space how how important space itself actually is and, and finding ways to get things onto the page in order to say what you want to say. Uh, did you find any lessons from that element of the job carried over into kind of the digital realm? Yeah, and to to some degree. I mean, the layout. Uh, you know, we, our, our tools are are limited compared to what you could do in you know Adobe InDesign uh, for for laying out something on a page, just because of the way uh, website CMS works. Um, mm-hmm. But we've we've gotten. Um, a little better about that. Like we've, we've got our, our, our tools are getting better just in terms of like, you can do box outs and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, we've always been able to do large pull, pull quote text, um, which I, I like to use just to, to break up the, you know, a great big you know wall of text. Um, but yeah. And then just like the, the, the need to be concise when, when you don't necessarily have to, but, um, I, I think is, I think it's better to, get to the point pretty quickly, uh, rather than, rather than ramble on for, for, you know, four paragraphs before you get to whether you, what are you, you know, the game you're talking about is good or bad. Um, I think is, is a, a lesson that was drilled into me then, you know, just to be, just to be, um, uh, efficient with space. But I think it's also just 
better to read. Like you don't you don't want to have to read a, a long anecdote about you know what somebody had for for breakfast that day before they start talking about what what we're all here to discuss. I think that's been the most interesting thing as an observer from the outside looking in and from you know following IGN, listening to IGN podcasts and and coverage from the 2006 era on through is. It, it for at one point it sounded like that you heard about people's breakfast and reviews or you heard about you know their own anecdotes and relationships to a game and it's gone through various stages of development and and how the readers and listeners uh consume it and it, it really has evolved into a very different place is there a reason you guys wanted to get away from uh kind of those personal anecdotes it was it a matter of space and efficiency I no, not I mean not not in uh, online. No, um, I think it's just a matter of, of style and what what uh, what the current crop of, of people running it uh, uh, tend to enjoy, or mm-hmm. you know, what what we think makes good reading. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, before I get too far away from your career, because I've got a number of questions about about a lot of what you brought up, uh, but you ended up being folded into IGN in 2013 and have been there since. How long have you been in the executive editor of reviews role? Uh, that since day one there, basically, well, not quite day one, but close. Um, yeah, I've, I've been doing this, this same role basically, well, not exactly the same role, but, but similar role for, for, uh, nine years, eight years, eight years, because the one, one year, one year that I've been with, you know, the iGen as a company was as editor in chief of GameSpy. Mm-hmm. Um, before that was, that was shut down and I was, I was folded in. Goodness. So you but have the, nine the, Sorry, the, the, the role the role has changed in that uh, initially I was I was just overseeing games and now I oversee I, I directly oversee games uh, myself and and my deputy editor uh, Tom Marks uh, largely oversee games but I also oversee people who who run our uh, movie and TV coverage and our our um, our uh, tech review coverage. Gotcha, gotcha. So far beyond just the gaming aspect of it, then. Right. I mean, I, like I said, I'm like directly overseeing games much more than I am uh, movies and TV, but I, I supervise those people. That sounds like a big job and one that potentially has a lot of influence on and impact on readers when you look at the audience size of IGN. Uh, Do you ever feel pressure knowing how many people are potentially impacted on the industry side or uh, are definitely going to be impacted on the people that are consuming it, people that are reading reviews, listening to content, that kind of stuff? I mean, absolutely. Like it's, that's a you know, responsibility to be, to be fair and, and honest. Um, I, I don't feel, uh, you know, I, I make a point of not, uh, not trying to take into account like what, you know, what will a negative review mean for, for the people that made this? Because like they already have a, a group of people that are paid to, to worry about that. They're marketing and advertising people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're the ones that, that are trying to sell something. Uh, regardless of what they personally think about it, uh, that's not the role of a critic. A critic is, is supposed to give you like they're supposed to be an, an impartial in that um, you know we have no business interest in in um, business or personal interest in in seeing uh, a, a certain game succeed or fail. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's that's the entire point of the role. So so I, I do feel a lot of pressure to maintain that uh, sense of impartiality, mm-hmm. um, but not not to uh, you know, try to ensure something is successful. Has your view on kind of the ethics of, of the industry and, and your role there changed over the, over the nine years, given that you do have to keep that impartiality element while also, 
working for a company that needs ad revenue and, and spacing on the page, that kind of stuff. No, I, I think that's been pretty consistent. I mean, like that's that's why you get into a, a job like like reviewing video games, right? You didn't you don't do that if you want to be a, a marketer, right? You, there's a that's that is I don't want to say it's an easier job. I've never done it, so I don't know exactly. But but that's a that's a you know that you don't have to you don't have to have any personal credibility to do it. I guess or personal sense of credibility. You're you're, you're out there trying to trying to move product, and you'll say whatever you have to say to get it done. Um, so it's, it's just different. Gotcha. Gotcha. I think oftentimes people will, uh, intermix the two kind of forgetting the two roles can be separate from one another. Uh, yeah, sure. there, there's definitely, there's definitely, you know, vocal fanboys on the, you know, who, uh, who are very upset when, when a critic doesn't like something that they like and, uh, uh, and they will, you know, try and assign blame to, to them for that, that thing succeeding or failing that thing that they like. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, to some, like there's some impact of, uh, you know, good and bad reviews on, on sales. Like that's, that's kind of the point, mm-hmm. but, uh, it's, I don't anecdotally, it hasn't been, uh, like I can't, I can't point to a game where I'm like, Oh, that, that game succeeded because of good reviews. That game failed because of bad reviews. Like there, there are way too many counter examples where, uh, you know, a, a game that got, got great reviews failed or a game that got terrible reviews, uh, succeeded. Mm-hmm. or Certainly mediocre so. reviews anyway. yeah no i i fully agree and oftentimes we forget that the reviewer uh is indeed in the writing their review giving their opinion which is a constant source of uh, amusement in terms of discussion and watching reviewers so much so that your twitter header is the definition of opinion right yeah uh people don't uh, i i don't you know don't overgeneralize but there are definitely a lot of people who don't understand the concept of of what a review is. They, they think it is a, uh, like a scientific process, uh, where, where you're you know, supposed to be objective as opposed to impartial. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, reviewing a, a game or a movie or TV show or book or song or any, any form of art is art criticism. Uh, and art like can't be objectively quantified just like the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, there's no, there's no, and you know, as, as many uh, people have tried over the decades that we've been reviewing video games, there's no way to to uh, come up with a system that's going to uh, accurately reflect the opinions of everybody because a lot of people have diametrically opposed opinions on how good games are. So how can how can one review reflect both of those? In in that realm, in that idea, you certainly have to create a system. You guys have the number system at IGN and it's gone through different variations, you know, a 10 point scale, five point scale, one point scale, that kind of stuff uh, through the course of, of its, I guess, existence. Uh, when you bring on a new reviewer, do you have to run them through? Uh, I, I would imagine you run them through a number of different things from kind of ethics training to also familiarizing themselves with what a score means at IGN. Uh, am I over generalizing or over assuming in that realm? No, I mean, we have a we have our um, our score definitions page that I, that I ask everybody to to read over um, mm-hmm. when they're when they're writing a review for us, whether it's whether it's uh, you know a staff member who's, who's been here for a long time or or just uh, somebody who's who's writing their first freelance review for us. Um, and yeah, that that just that goes over the the uh, word definitions of each of these scores because uh, like the the numbers I like to I like to point out to people it's not it's not math like. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it's, you know, it's, it's a number, but it's not math. It's more of a code. 
Mm-hmm. Um, like these these numbers are they're just they're sequential, but they but like uh, an eight is not twice as good as a four, right? Um, it's it, it adding and subtracting these things don't doesn't do anything uh, mm-hmm. because the numbers just represent words. Um, for example, on our, our scale, a 10 is a masterpiece, a nine is amazing, an eight is great, a seven is good, a six is okay, five is mediocre, four is bad, three is awful, two is painful, one is disaster. So um, yeah, not, not everybody has them memorized like I do, but uh, but every time we, we give a score or give a review, like the, the word that corresponds to that score is, is uh, next to it in great big letters. It would seem to me that it is a big misunderstanding for a lot of people uh, throughout that they want it to be math. They want it to be objective in terms of a process. You know, graphics are this, you know, music is this uh, and, and assigning a numerical value to it and then creating an average was a practice that even some magazines used to do and other outlets have done before. Do you ever run into pushback on that either uh, in, in bringing in a freelancer or in like internal meetings at various points? Uh, so, I mean, IGN itself did did have like the, you know, uh, an individual uh, category scores and then a, an overall score. But even in those cases, at least I'm not sure it was always there, but but most of the time that I, that I saw it, it was uh, it always had like not an average written next to the final score mm-hmm. because um, like it, it, it every time I've seen that tried, you know, I've been doing this almost 20 years. Every time I've seen that tried, uh, it it fails because. Uh, those scores can can force you to give a final score that you don't personally agree with, right? So you take something like uh, I don't know, say say Minecraft. Like a lot of people don't like the look of Minecraft, but uh, so you can say like what what score would you give the the graphics on Minecraft? Uh, and you give that like oh say it say it's like a it's a four. I don't I don't like the the graphics, but everything else about this game I love. I think it's, it's a fantastic game. Um, but if I, if I have those like hard math equations in there, uh, just like failing on one aspect of, of that scorecard brings down my recommendation, even though I want to give it the highest recommendation because right. at the end of the day, the, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that the graphics are as important as everything else. So <laughs> it's, it just doesn't, doesn't really work that way. But yes, I, I certainly understand why people want that. Um, mm-hmm. And I understand uh, that like they, they see like the way they were graded in school um, and they see, they see like, Oh, I got, you know, X number of points taken off. Or I started a hundred and I get X number of points taken off for every mistake I make. Um, and that's just not how, again, how our criticism works. Um, but I, I do um, I, like there, there are all kinds of uh, different, scoring systems uh i think the the association with um with how people were graded in school is one of the biggest problems with a numerical system mm-hmm. um and, but like at, at this point uh ign has, has you know been using a, a, a system similar to this for almost 25 years mm-hmm. uh and it's and like the the branding is so so tightly associated with that like people see you know nine out of ten ign and they they like that's so recognizable, right? If we were to mm-hmm. su- suddenly change to like letter grades or stars or something like that, uh, it, it's a, it's a big, it's a big change for an outlet with such a history to make. Um, you know, it's a, it's a lot to <laughs> a lot to ask. So I d- I don't foresee any any big uh, shifts away from a numerical score uh, of some form for IGN happening anytime real soon. 
one of the the aspects of that is that you have different people reviewing different games, and uh, as a result, they all can put their stamp on the IGN nine out of ten, eight out of ten, you know, masterpiece, what what have you. And one of the things I've really enjoyed about uh, IGN and other outlets that have done this is they'll have the reviewer on a podcast or show or video segment, and they'll discuss with other people that have played the game why they did and didn't make a choice for this. Um, has has that been a conscious effort at any point in your time with the company? Uh, did that happen organically? How did that? How does those those conversations end up? Just as far as as uh, getting people to discuss with other others, uh, the reviewers get to discuss with other people who played it. Yeah, within the company, because when you have you know editor A and editor B who who disagree on a score, but one of them reviewed it, one of them has their stamp on the game, whereas the other is you know their own source of uh, adding a voice, but they they don't associate the the nine out of ten, eight out of ten part of it. Those conversations to me are the most exciting and interesting when I hear them. Uh, discuss why and how they come to a conclusion on a score, uh, even if they disagree with their peers. I've always enjoyed that type of content. Yeah, I mean, d- debates uh, about how good a game are are always always fun to have, and it's it's uh, valuable to 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 the audience because they you know it's always good to have more than one perspective on something, especially when people disagree. Then you get to pick which one you think is right. Uh, you know, it just increases the the chances that that uh, you're going to hear somebody that agrees with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, we, we always, you know, whenever we do it, we keep it good natured. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't, uh, there's, there's no, uh, I, I always, always encourage people just like, don't, don't say somebody is wrong about a game if they disagree with it, uh, disagree with you on it, just because mm-hmm. like, they're not wrong. You're not wrong. You just have different opinions. Sure. Um, so it, like, you're like, nobody's ever going to convince you that you are, you are wrong to like something you that you like. Um, that's, I don't think that's ever happened to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, sure. for decades of people yelling at me for, for, uh, for liking something that they don't. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, we, and we've done, um, you know, we've deliberately, uh, brought up those, those topics, uh, for a while there, I was, I was doing a, a, uh, series that you can still find on, on IGN and on YouTube called, uh, called review discussions, uh, mm-hmm. where we had a, a panel, uh, come on and talk about what their favorite parts were, what they, what they, what their least favorite parts were. Uh, and just like, uh, whether, whether they would have scored or what score they would have given it, that kind of stuff. So, um, uh, and I think that the reason we, we ended up, uh, not doing those anymore was a, it's, it's really hard to, to get, uh, in a timely way to get a whole panel of people to play all the way through a game, like a reviewer has, mm-hmm. um, like that's, that is a, like, Games take a long time to play, um, especially the the some of the more interesting ones that people want to discuss. Uh, so if you're if you're trying to get a bunch of people to play through The Witcher three and and talk about it, like that's a, that's a big uh, a big ask for for uh, everybody to do for every game. Uh, also, like sometimes we don't get enough copies beforehand for for um, for people to get a head start on it. So by the time we're able to to, to do those conversations kind of moved on um uh, also like the the art of headline writing is uh like if you don't have a compelling headline for somebody to to uh to catch their attention and, and click on it and read or watch it or what what have you like they're just they're just going to pass it by so and we did come up with some good headlines for those uh you know talking about like the you know the is the combat in, in uh the witcher the best 
action RPG combat or whatever, but that would end up uh, kind of stepping on our features writers because uh, yeah, they, they would also have, have similar ideas to write about and, um, and we would kind of overlap. So it's like, eh, let's maybe uh, just let, let them do their thing. It's funny you mentioned the discussions. That was quite literally what I was thinking of, uh, particularly given uh, the discussions of Arkham Knight. That that was literally what was in my mind. So it's funny you brought that up. Um, but it makes perfect sense why you would have to perhaps steer away is not the right element, but timing and headlines do both play a big factor. And uh, that leads me to another question. And uh, how how big is the impact of a timely review and review process, given that Sometimes you have a lot of head lead time with the game. Others, other times it, it comes out, uh, you know, kind of right in there at the deadline of, of when embargo lifts. And the timing of a review certainly must play a big role in being relevant to the audience, but also in generating traffic on a site where you, you must have an audience to, to view your content. Well, it's, it's they're one and the same, right? If, if, uh, if you, if you have relevant, a relevant review go up in a timely way, the audience clicks on it. If you, if you uh, are way behind the pack and everyone already knows how good this game is by the time your review comes out, then, you know, it's, it's yesterday's news. It's not uh, like our, you know, a review. Um, <laughs> if you look at the, the, um, the Google trends graph for, like you can do this for any, any game, you know, game review uh, and uh, just look at the, the amount of people searching for that content. It's a, it's a, a spike right around launch and then, it drops off heavily. And if you miss mm-hmm. that spike, well, you still, you know, get some, some traffic out of it. It's oftentimes worth it to, to go back and get something or to, you know, review something a little bit later. But, uh, if you don't get that spike, like that's, that's the, the, what's your, what's your, you know, your bread and butter, I guess. When you are working with different companies that provide codes, is there ever discussion of, hey, we, like, you know, ahead of time, hey, this one's coming in hot or, hey, we're going to give you a good good amount of time on that. Most recently, my mind jumps to uh, how early codes for Horizon went out and the re- reviewers were able to get a good amount of time on that kind of game, uh, whereas other games come in far more close to an embargo lift. Like Elden Ring, for example. <laughs> I yeah, was thinking um, that one too. <laughs> yeah, like every, every time, basically. Um, <laughs> uh, but there's there's precious little control we have over that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's pretty much all in the hands of the developers and how they're feeling about their game. Um, the the that that that's something that has uh, majorly changed, uh, you know, since the magazine days too, because you know we didn't have zero day patches back then. Sure. Um, so developers would have to get their games into, you know, much, much better shape because the, the game that was on the disc is the game that you would play or the game most people would play, mm-hmm. uh, not, the, not the patched version. Whereas today, nobody plays the, the version of a game that's on the disc. Uh, it's, it's the patched version. Mm-hmm. Um, unless, like, I don't even know if that will work anymore. <laughs> certainly, <laughs> certainly not on PC. Uh, Probably not on the con for most games for console. Like you could probably not even play them unless you unless you connect to the internet and download a patch. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there except- sounds so blasphemous when you look at 25, 20 years ago, but to n- yeah. now it's like what a silly thing to do to not hook up your console to the internet. Yep. But uh, yeah, so so like the developers are uh, kind of incentivized to to wait until the last minute because they can get in those last fixes and they want they want reviewers to have the best possible experience. They don't want they don't want you to have have to, uh, you know, or to hit a bunch of bugs that are that are going to make you like their game less. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, 
you know, having to play through a game at as fast as you possibly can is not an ideal way to do it either. Um, but I don't think that they value that as <laughs> they prioritize that as much as I would like. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's basically a, a conversation with pretty much every review we do is like, how soon can we get this? Can we have it sooner? Mm-hmm. Um, because every, every day counts, uh, you know, especially if you're, if you, uh, have anything else you want to get done during that period. Yeah, I can imagine. And then the idea of not wanting your own staff to burn out, trying to play through some of these games that are 20, 30, 40 hours long. Uh, and at the same time hitting that window of relevancy and it's gotta be a double-edged sword. Uh, all yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, you know, a fine line to walk. And I, I personally err on the side of like, don't kill yourself to get this done. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we want it done quickly, but, but like get some sleep. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't, uh, you know, work all through the night on these, on these things. Like it's not, it's generally not worth it in the long run. Um, some people will do it despite the, despite my protest against my against my advice. Um, it's it's a weird thing with games because some people are so passionate about them that you know they've been looking forward to playing it forever, uh, and they they now have an excuse to play you know relentlessly and, and just just uh, power through uh, as, as you know fast as they can and you know, play play not around the clock but but you know every waking hour. Um, Trust and, me, I watched uh, Miles and Ains and many other people in the gaming industry burn themselves out on games like Elden Ring. They had so much fun, but they put in 80, 90 hours when, when the game had been out for, what, two weeks? It was just nuts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's like, so you, so you can tell people don't do that, but a lot of, some of them will do it anyway just because they, they really want to. And, like, I have I have no way to prevent them from doing it mm-hmm. because I don't live with them. Gotcha. Has work from home changed that conversation in any way, shape, or form? No, that, that that's been pretty constant. I mean, most of the most of the gameplay hours were done from home anyway, um, except for you know people that are that are like actually like capturing footage in the in the office. Although we mm-hmm. do that from home now too, just we have we move the equipment. Gotcha. Gotcha. You mentioned zero day patches, and that brings up the other element of reviewing games, and that. Oftentimes the game you have a review score on a year later, it's not the same game. It has evolved. We have a lot of live service games. And uh, I noticed a trend at one point uh, industry wide and at IGN even where you gave, you know, the 2021 review of sea of thieves or whatnot uh, to give a more updated element. What, what justifies updating a review or changing a score on a game uh, in a world where you do have live service elements? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is a, a sticky subject. Um, you know, for, for a long time, I was, I was adamantly against doing any kind of update to it just because, uh, like it, you, you, for one thing, it creates the expectation that you, you'll do it for every game. You know, mm-hmm. you'll go back and revisit everything, but there's no way to even review, uh, a lot of the games that come out once, much less multiple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just not enough time for that. Um, it also like, I haven't, and this, this actually did not come to pass. I haven't had this really happen. Uh, but it, I, I worried that it would incentivize developers who were upset about a score that they got to try and pressure, uh, pressure us to do, to, you know, re-review, uh, their game with, you know, a better score. Uh, I haven't had that actually come up, which is, which was a relief. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, 
like the the ones that we do pick to to do a, an updated review on are generally the like you said the games that that are dramatically different to the point where it would change our recommendation um and also where there's still a community interest in it because you know again you can you can re-review a bunch of a bunch of uh you know little games that have, that have had substantial changes but if if nobody's searching for them then then or if we're looking for conversation about it or opinion on it then you're just kind of screaming into the void um so it's it's something that we do typically when when it's a, a slow period and when uh you know because that, that game's been there the whole time but you know we've got uh kind of a, a slowdown in the, the larger games coming out um and when we have something we want to say about it. interesting interesting does traffic or, or interest from the audience ever impact that well i mean you know we, we don't like i said I, we don't want to uh spend all the time to review re-review a game uh that nobody cares about so sure so yes if if uh you know we, we do take audience interest into account like if it, if a game is still you know being talked about a lot you know if it has good youtube numbers if it's if it you know looks good on google trends if people read other articles we've written about it then yeah that will definitely influence our our decision to to put in the considerable resources that are required to re-review something gotcha gotcha then one of your or rather i should say your pinned tweet is one that i would have to think was born of of Frustration, but also repetition of having to repeat it. Uh, and it says for any listener that is is unaware that you pledged to quit your job if anybody could offer a credible uh, piece of evidence that IGN has ever accepted a bribe for a review uh, and that you plan on being at work the next day. Is that something that consistently seems to come up? I often see fanboyism's comment section say things like this, this review is paid off, that kind of thing. Um, I, I have to imagine that for you to post something like that, you just got frustrated to hear over and over again. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something, you know, it's a meme, right? It's, it's uh, like, Oh, any, any review that, and it comes down to people not understanding the concept of opinion where mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, anyone who liked a game I didn't like, or disliked a game that I liked uh, must be a liar. Uh, and why would they lie? Because somebody's paying them to, that's the only, only explanation that these people can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so like a lot, a lot of them, a lot of them are just repeating it. Like they don't really believe it, but they, they think it's a joke, but you know, the, the the uh there's really no distinction between pretending to be an asshole on the internet uh for a joke and actually being an asshole on the internet mm-hmm. so there's there's um that that just gets you know repeated in you know every reddit thread and and what have you and like a, a bunch of a bunch of younger you know impressionable people or conspiratorially minded people see it so many times they're like well if i see it all this all these times it must be true but you notice with all of those claims nobody ever has a shred of evidence to back it up. It's just completely fabricated uh, just mm-hmm. because they, they don't, they, they, you know, can't accept that somebody has a different opinion of, of a game than they do. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, just kind of a, a, a challenge to these people like, uh, Hey, you know, you think, you think you, you can show that you think it's a, a fact that all these reviews are bought and paid for somebody offers some evidence mm-hmm. and nobody ever has. So obviously, Obviously, I still have my job. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, obviously so. And does it ever lead to internal conversations about like reviews skewing or trending a certain way, uh, at least to 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 remind and justify that like, hey, like this game is great. Like when I see people talk about Sony's games being so highly reviewed, it's like, well, 
yeah, they're unanimously highly reviewed across the board uh, at a number of sites. And I always chuckle when I see the the suggestion that somehow people are are paying for it. Does that ever lead to internal discussions about that? I mean, we always we try and have we try and think of ways that like we can dissuade people of this notion. It's like what kind of extra transparency can we can we uh, give to, to to just show that yeah, we are we are just telling you what we think about these games, and we are not uh, you know influenced by like like our our, our uh, ad. Now, obviously, we're an ad supported business, so that mm-hmm. that is a difficult perception to overcome in some cases because some people just will not believe you when. When I, I tell them like I have nothing to do with the ad ad sales department like it, it I don't I don't even know the names of most of those people sure. uh, we don't we don't talk um, like if if a negative review costs us ad revenue I don't know I don't know how much is spent on an ad I don't know what ads are going to be on what articles I don't know any of this stuff um, so it's it, it even even if I was like worried about it uh, I wouldn't. No, I would, you know, which I'm not. Um, I wouldn't know how to avoid <laughs> how to avoid doing any of that, uh, or how to avoid making them mad other than just giving everybody a positive review, which clearly we don't do. So okay. I actually have a, a, a folder on my on my hard drive of, of screenshots of a bunch of uh, you know ads of for for things uh, running next to negative reviews of them. Uh, just because like people are like, oh, obviously you gave this a high score because there's a big ad right there. It's like, well, how about all these cases where we did the exact opposite? Sure. Um, but yeah, it's it's something that we hear a lot and something that we would rather uh, we would love to be able to convince people uh, is uh, made up. It's the age old frustration of headlines sell papers, but also people need to hear the news and they need to hear objective news and, and fair critiques. And it's uh like that's an ongoing trend no matter the media magazine print newspapers digital areas it feels like that's a constant thing that people have to compete against yeah i mean like i said some people uh don't don't uh don't believe that other people can have a different opinion than they do and if if they do then it must be or if they say they do then it must be a lie and they must be paid liars so uh you're, you're never going to convince everybody earlier we talked about uh embargoes and kind of when games need to be relevant uh, for the audience that's searching for them. Do you think more information should be made publicly available for when codes come in uh, or when review copies come in for review? Uh, I mean, sure. But uh, like oftentimes, oftentimes they'll ask us not to. Uh, So like sometimes you'll, you'll see these days you'll see um, uh, you can, you can tweet a picture of the box or you can, you know, you can, they'll, they'll explicitly say like, it's, it's okay to do this. So, sure. so oftentimes you will, you will see that happen, but I'd, I'd still say more often than not, they ask us not to. Um, mm-hmm. and there are varying reasons for that. Um, you know, I've, it's, it's been baffling to me, but I've you know had enough conversations with PR people, uh, just like, why do you do that? And sometimes it's like, well, sometimes they don't even know, but some, they've just been told to do that. Uh, sometimes, um, Sometimes they they are worried um, that like they don't have enough codes to go out to everybody at once uh, in the mm-hmm. first batch. They they trickle out for some reason, mm-hmm. which is also a weird thing. Um, but uh, so they they don't want uh, they don't want to be barraged by uh, everybody else when they see uh, like oh IGN got a copy why didn't I get a copy? Um, so a lot of it is is just for their sanity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I you know I certainly I certainly prefer to be able to. Uh, put up a, a post saying like, oh, here's when our here's when our you know 
uh, God of War Ragnarok review will be will be out. Come come check it out because that we get to promote it, uh, promote our content that way. That's just that helps us. So when we can, we like to, uh, but oftentimes they uh, they don't want us to. Interesting. That makes it makes more sense as you explained it. Like as you were explaining the the logic there, it started to kind of click into why you would roll them out in stages, even though. Uh, that can be frustrating at times, you know, for, for different people, including content creators, I think, um, which of which I have a bias there. But I'm curious mm-hmm. if, if content creators have influenced your profession and, and what it is you guys do uh, on that sense, because I would argue that you guys are the more professional side of an enthusiast industry, whereas content creators can be can be in the professional side, but also very much in the, the hobby element of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would not say that the you know, content creators as a whole are not professional. There's a bunch of people that are very professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there are also a bunch of people who, who are, who run, you know, their own, their own uh, outlets or, or you know, small outlets that, that are very unprofessional, but that, that's just their style and that's fine. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I don't like lay claim to like any kind of, you know, holier than thou, like our, our reviews are better than, than some YouTubers reviews. Like some of those, some YouTubers do fantastic reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how how have uh, influencers or you know content creators changed what we do? Um, I wouldn't say they've really changed anything about reviews. Um, <laughs> I guess the the one the one thing that, that that's uh, that comes up from time to time is I'll see like YouTubers streaming a game that I haven't gotten a copy of yet, uh, and it's like that's aggravating. Um, so, I, I, but you know, they, they some of them have entered into agreements where they uh, are not allowed to criticize it. So they got <laughs> they got an early copy, True. Um, which is, I think, a different thing than a review. It is, yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, well, and a lot of them just don't don't do reviews. But it's it's kind of uh, uh, I don't want to say stealing our thunder, but but it, but it is it is it is moving up the. Uh, the date by which you know the, the relevancy question, right? So mm-hmm. it's like if everyone's already seen uh, like so much of this game, uh, especially played by somebody who is entirely uncritical of it, uh, they are less interested in seeing a review because the question of how good is this has has been answered to some extent. I suppose I have one final question before I open the door to to, to anything that you you'd like to offer outside of what we've asked, um, and it's a it's a weighted one, I suppose, and that is. <laughs> what makes a good review? I feel like it's such a big question. Well, I mean, for me, it's just like the, the, the more opinion you can have in there, the better. Uh, I think the, what, what separates a review from other types of content is opinion. Like that's what you're here for. Um, you know, I, I don't want to see, uh, an instruction manual. I don't want to see just like a, a vague description of this game. I don't want to see like the back of the box description. Uh, like I first and foremost, is this game good or not? And, and then why? Um, one of the things I try and stamp out in, in reviews is like paragraphs of story synopsis and, and just like it has, it has X number of, of maps or it has, you know, just like listing features. Um, and I, I, I recognize that, that the audience wants to know raw information about games, but I want that to be kind of, coded in opinion it's like don't tell me there are six maps tell me there are five good maps and three bad ones mm-hmm. uh you know and, and like tell me why um yeah just use that as as an introduction to your to your uh paragraph about like what makes a good map and why these why these are good and bad um you know don't don't tell me you know that the main character is a 
is a as a journalist tell me he's a he's a, a terrible journalist who's annoying to listen to right mm, um, I see what you mean the, like the the information comes through but it does so in the context of supporting the opinion that you're putting out there gotcha okay interesting it's the idea of it being coded in opinion makes so much sense to me um right it's like if you don't have, if you don't have an opinion about about a feature like why are you even bringing it up yeah, that's a good point because your the role is not to be an instruction manual to be critical. Right. Interesting. I think like I there's there's actually like a, a a moment I can pinpoint in my in my career where where like a light bulb went off and like I I finally I like understood like oh this is what this is what a, a, the whole point of a review is. I was I was reviewing I think Supreme Commander for PC Gamer magazine and I okay. I, I, I had turned in a, a draft to to my uh, editor the review editor of PC Gamer at the time was Chuck Osborne and uh, the feedback he gave on me is uh, gave gave me on it was uh, well you told me what it is but you, you didn't tell me if it's any good and it's like oh okay that's what I'm here for and that's where it rolled over in your mind yeah that, that's and that you know, just, just kind of like you know clarified what I was supposed to be doing. I can tell you that uh, on a very amateur level, that's been my frustration at the various points in content creation where I've, I've done reviews, whether it's written for or an outlet or uh, audio for, for XEP. It's been a consistent bumbling point for me. And so it's it makes so much more sense when you say it as simply as that. And sometimes it takes that little bit to just make it make it click, you know? Yeah. And that's a that's a big uh... A big element of you know, a lot of the, the the feedback that I and I, I like to give. Uh, I'm a I'm a pretty heavy editor. Like a lot of, especially on um, and you know on online where the pace is so much faster than than uh, it was in print. Um, a lot of editors are are you know have a pretty light touch, but I I tend to like to give a lot of feedback, give a lot of a lot of uh, edits, um, and you know have more of a collaborative process with with writers, um, and you know it's something I. Uh, well, I guess when, when I first when I first started at IGN, there were there were some people that that appreciated it more than others. But I think um, uh, because you know some people were were it's like this is slowing me down. You know, I just want to get this this out the door as soon as I can and move on to the next thing. Why do I have to do multiple rounds? And I'm like, well, you know, where 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 I come from, uh, the, you know, we we would you know, like nothing would go in the magazine without having like multiple people read it and give give feedback. Um, but you know that there's not really time for that in in uh, in online print journalism or online journalism because of the pace of things. But having at least one person go over, uh, you know, as much stuff as you can do, uh, I think really you know elevates the quality of it and irons out a lot of a lot of uh, wrinkles before before the the public sees it and tells you you did it wrong. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, Dan, I, I have to know, is there anything else that you would like to pass on to to listeners about the review process, your work, IGN, anything like of that nature? I guess I'll just end with, with my my personal little pet peeve about, about games writing is the overuse of the phrase, the game, uh, or the two words, the game. Um, that, like there are certain certain contexts in which it's, I, I tolerate the game. And that's uh, like if you're saying uh, I, I played, I was playing Madden and we won the game. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. They're talking about a, a game that is not, it's not synony- it's a, a synonym for or a stand in for the title of the game that you're playing. Okay. Um, <laughs> but if you, if you look at, and you know, now that I'm telling you this, if you, you probably won't be able to unsee it. Uh, but if you, uh, 
open just like an, an average or, you know, just a random uh, game review from, you know, from pretty much any site except IGN and do control F the game. Uh, it, uh, sometimes some people are better about it than others, but, but uh, sometimes you'll see it just lights up like a Christmas tree. Uh, like you'll, you'll see, you know, the game's weapons, the game's characters, the game's blah, blah, blah. Like it, it, people just can't, can't get through a sentence without doing it once or twice. Uh, and it, it's, it's part of a, you know, it just kind of drains, um, drains the writing of any personality when it sounds just like what everybody else does. It makes it more repetitive. Um, so if I, if I can put out one request to all your, all your listeners is, uh, when you're writing, writing pretty much anything, just avoid saying the game at any, at almost all costs. There's certain cases where you can, you can, you can't really get around it, but, uh, that's that's one of the first things I do when I get a draft in is is look for the game and if it has too many the games in it I'll send it back and say fix this <laughs> this is not this is not going to work. So it's uh, you know I was thinking it was your phrase would have been in my opinion, but <laughs> the game sounds equally if not more egregious uh, when you put it in, into that perspective for well, sure. It's just, it's just overused. Um, like I don't, I don't have a problem with them in my opinion, aside from some people who think that you need to preface every opinion within my opinion. Uh, whereas I, I feel that in a, in a review, which is by definition, an opinion, uh, it's implied that pretty much everything in there is your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we know it's your opinion. You're the one talking. Yes. <laughs> well, Dan Stapleton, uh, executive editor of IGN's reviews. I appreciate you so much for, uh, lending your time today, lending your insight today uh, and helping us kind of understand the process that you all go through, uh, at IGN. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Nice talking to you.